Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and in today's episode, I was joined by Scott Kim, director at Lenovo, to talk about earning executive support for your competitive program. Scott's led competitive at many different organizations, some of which were large competitive teams at the enterprise level. In other cases, he's also been that team of one. So he has a ton of experience around the different ways to get the ears of execs. In this episode, we talk about the importance of presenting solutions instead of problems to your execs, why Scott uses war rooms and their effectiveness, and what it means to address current money and future money when you're laying out your competitive program's objectives to executives. With that said, let's get into today's episode. All right, today I'm joined by Scott Kim, who has led competitive programs at various companies. He was formerly a director and analyst at Gartner and has ran or built competitive programs at Hitachi, G Digital, Wind River, and Conga, to name a few. So he knows a thing or two about competitive. Scott, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for uh, spending the time just chatting with me. I'm uh, I'm really excited, actually, given your experience in the field and the different types of competitive programs you've been a part of. But off the bat, regardless of the company you're at, the industry you're in, or the sophistication of the program in place, I really want to dive into getting executive support. First, first things first. Why does getting executive support matter? It matters for a few reasons. One, you want to get as much visibility and as much credibility as you can from the executives. It makes it so much easier when the executive team know who you are and what value that you're bringing to the, to the company. The second reason is, is that competitive is all about collaboration and cross-functional, you know, collaboration with different departments. And if the executive teams know who you are, when you talk to the other cross-functional teams, they'll know who you are because you're going to be mentioned either by name or by your function. And that's going to be, that's going to help in some ways bust down walls because you're going to get some people that may not want to work with you or collaborate with you because not because they don't like you or anything like that. It's because, they, they may not, you may not be a priority on their prior list, but by having executive buy-in credibility, you immediately go up to their list of priorities because this is something that what you bring to the table is going to help your company grow at a high velocity. And I think you don't just walk in the door with this credibility, like with anything it's earned, right? That's so- correct. What, what's that first step? I'm sure it might not be the same in every case, but what's that first step in actually earning credibility with these execs? Like, how do you kind of approach them to start with? So this is a great advice I've heard from many years ago from an executive. The executive told me, Scott, every day people come to me about problems. Our companies don't do this. Our company does a poor job doing this. We don't have the right headcount or resources, whatever the problem is. Executives hear problems all the time. What this executive said to me was, if someone came to me with solutions, then that's someone I want to listen to. So the number one thing is that one, do your homework. 
you know, when you come to a new role, new company, or even if you're at your company and you're trying to figure out, okay, I know what the problems are, do your research because nowadays, and I hate to use this terminology because it's getting kind of, you know, heated out, if you will, is everybody wants to be data driven, right? So have your data put together and say, okay, here's the problem that we have. Here's the data that supports the problem. Now figure out, go to the next step and figure out what the solution is. And this is where it gets scary because this is where you need to be bold. This is where you need to be creative. This is where you need to really show the executives that you care and you've done your homework. So talk with other people, go talk with people in cross-functional teams saying, here is the problem. Talk with product management, talk with engineering, talk with product marketing, talk with somebody to understand what the solution is and maybe read some books. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of being fictitious, but like try to use your creativity to figure out what you can to solve that problem. And then go to the executive, go to your sponsor. Like for instance, if you're in the sales organization, go to your CRO, chief revenue officer. If you're in the, in the product group, go to your head of chief product strategy or whatever, whoever is your ELT member and say, this is my research. This is the solution. Do I have the green light? And, and then once you get the green light, then start small, right? Don't, don't boil the ocean. Start something small in bite-sized phases. And then your goal is to get the metrics to show that what you're doing is improving. And once you show levels of improvement, then you can go to the general executive team saying, what we've done here in the last six months is improve our win rate by 10, 15%. I'm making this up. Like, here's an example, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, oh yeah, so, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear some examples here too. Yeah, so when I went to Conga as an example, our win rates were atrocious. We were, our win rates were, you know, really low, let's put it that way. And what we've done is look at what's the solution we can to improve the win rates. And after a lot of cross-functional interviews, so to speak, the one thing we learned is uh, a lot of the AEs were pretty new to the company and they didn't really understand the market or the product or whatever it is. So what we did was we created the concept of a weekly war room for that specific product that had really low win rates. And what the war room consists of is all subject matter experts through all the different cross-functional teams, product management, product marketing, engineering, professional services, sales operations, and really key sales leaders who knew the market well, who'd been at the company for many years. And basically on a weekly cadence, we have an AE that will come with their deal that we pulled out of the CRM system. Usually the criteria was new logos above a certain dollar amount. And we talked about their deal for the first you know, 15, 20 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes, we as a subject matter experts will give kind of like a, a very short burst sales enablement training on this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why the competitive products is uh, whether it be better or maybe that's their narrative, we're here to help the salesperson understand what the full landscape is 
to enable that person to kind of sidestep away from all the FUD or the landmines and to be able to get to the deal to pole position or cross a finish line. I think this is really creative. I also think it could it could go one of two ways, this war room. Like when I when I immediately think of a war room and you're an A and maybe the A's lost a deal and they're they're struggling and now there's all these um the subject matter experts it might start to feel like an interrogation of sorts like how do you kind of toe that line of we're not interrogating you here we're not uh we're not telling you you're doing a bad job we're here to improve no that's a great that's a great input the first thing is that when you hold these meetings it's very important that you as a competitive intelligence analyst should moderate or be the meeting organizer of this to make sure that everybody's on the same page that we're in this together and we're here to win it together. We're not here to interrogate or to criticize the salesperson's tactics. We're here to inoculate, if I can use that word, and help that salespeople win that deal. Because at the end of the day, the company's only as successful if the revenue continues to come, particularly new logos. So we're not here to disable our salespeople. We're here to enable them, okay? But it's very important as a moderator to be very strong. If you hear anybody criticizing or showing some signs of negativity, you as a moderator have to cut that really quickly and just say, there's no room for that here. We're here together and to make sure that you're the advocate for the AE and, and all to make sure that this is a productive meeting because we can all agree in the business world there's a lot of tempers that flares now if the if the conversation becomes deconstructive then no it's not going to be a productive meeting so it's really important that you as a moderator have to ensure that this meeting is productive it's interesting this idea of the person in charge of competitive as a moderator because not only in that like micro situation there of a warren, but it also when you said, okay, we need to address a problem and you're looking across these different product lines. Uh, but you, when, you, when you address like, okay, this is one of our products that has a really low win rate right now, you're going to be jumping from department to department, right? You're going to be talking to sellers. You're going to be talking to the product team. Like you're going to be mm-hmm. almost this person that's like a connector amongst all of these different departments to not only identify the problem, but then also in a, in a situation like the war room to try to help bring people together to build a solution. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest key benefit of why executives, you'll get executive credibility and buy-in is because by nature, the war room is a cross-functional collaborative efforts. All executives want to promote that. You don't want to be, I mean, this is the you got to understand in executive psyches, right? They don't want silos. Nobody wants silos. You don't want to kick stuff over the fence to each of the different partners and say, hey, that's your problem, not my problem. So that is an executive's worst nightmare is working in silos. So what the war room by nature is, is a silo buster and being cross-collaborative and helping and this is the opportunity to get into a specific deal, an actual deal, and to be able to – and some deals are very complicated, right? Some deals may take more than 30 minutes conversation, right? 
were to get everybody involved and get the whole weight of the company involved of helping that particular account executive win that deal, so to speak. And to be able to provide that anecdotal input is actually very powerful um, because not only are we helping the AE, but remember it's a two-way street. We're learning about the deal. So then it may help us like, let's be, let's be honest. Maybe your, our products stink against the com competition. So this deal is going to explode, expose that. So it's a two-way street of saying product management, you probably need to put a fire underneath your roadmap to improve it, to get up to parity, perhaps. I, I don't know. So, but the purpose of these war rooms is not only just to help the AE win a deal, but it's also to learn from it. Maybe it'll help us in our in our own department. Maybe it's a professional service issue uh, or a customer experience issue that gets exposed. This is an opportunity for us as a company to learn from this. And I think going back to when you first mentioned that sage piece of advice there, the execs want solutions, not problems. Mm -hmm. These solutions as well, I, I think that Warm is like a good uh, specific example of how you go about finding that solution. How do you also present this to the execs? Like what are sort of the, I guess, qualitative and quantitative metrics that you're showing that you're going to show to an exec that says, okay, I'm, I'm getting to that solution. It's, it's getting there. So like I mentioned earlier, it's all about the data, right? So what you can show over a period of a quarter, maybe three months, six months, eight months, whatever how long it takes, you can get the low percentage win rate. Win rate. And if you start to see it increase, because what you could do is collect metrics on which deals went through a war room and then look at your CRM system to see when they close it, did they close lose it or did they close won it basically? And you can, you can start seeing which deals did we close when that went through a war room? And if it shows, and I'm making up numbers, an 80% uh, percentage of all deals that went through a win room or war room, excuse me, and close won it versus deals that we lost that did not go through a win room or war room, boom, there, that's data that you can't, you know, you can't disagree with. And you share that with the executive team and they're going to be like, okay, something's, something's working here now. And that's how you move the needle and increase your credibility with the executive team. So then you can introduce other programs like, uh, you know, it, it could be uh, programs like some aspect of market intelligence where you could start to look at new market adjacent markets and to figure out, you know, what markets can your company can grow into? That's another function of competitive that I like to kind of congeal together with uh, market intelligence. I mean, the opportunities is vast once you start to gain that credibility and value by the executive team. You've talked before with our VP of product market convincing about current money, which is what you've mentioned there, enabling sellers and then future money, kind of looking into what, into the future, what, the market might look like what right. competitive landscape might look like and before we went live here you were talking about for example the tech landscape when covid hit no one knew what that was going to look like and so i'm i'm curious as well how do you present that to execs in a way that they'll they'll listen 
the biggest thing is showing, having that analytical approach, like COVID is a perfect example. You know, there was a lot of companies this time last year, a lot of companies had no idea what to do. Some companies stopped spending. All they did was keep the lights on and stop new projects, IT projects or technology implementation projects or technology spending projects, whatever that looked like. Um, but some companies accelerated their spending. COVID was a catalyst of accelerating like work from home. You know, this whole end user experience totally went off the roof, right? Um, cl the cloud players, you know, you, if you look at some of the, the quarterly, you know, quarterly inputs from AWS or Azure or whatever, they, they did not lose a beat during the COVID times. So it's one of those things where if, if you have, now we're talking future money here, if you have a discipline on foreshadowing or have some sort of analytical model to show whenever you have variables like a COVID or maybe uh, a market contraction or a market acceleration, it shows models to show like which markets are going to accelerate, which markets are not, which markets are going to decelerate. That's going to be intelligence that your executive team is going to want to know, like to show seasonality analysis. Like a lot of, I mean, in the first thing you're thinking like, wow, competitive intelligence, do we even have that uh, discipline? Well, you know what? you got to have it. Now, I want to be very clear. And Adam and I, we talked about this. Current money skill sets is very different than future money skill sets, okay? Now, if you have somebody that has both discipline, that's awesome. But usually from a current money, you want somebody that is an enabler who can collaborate well, who could you know, be able to bust down silos. The future money discipline, you want somebody who's analytical, who you want somebody that can you know, be very, very provocative of thinking out of the box, who could put down the taxonomy and definition of a new market. You may even have to hire a data scientist on your team who could do statistical R analysis, random forest analysis, Monte Carlo simulations. That's a whole nother discipline that future money brings. And this is where if you gain your credibility by your executive leadership team, you can probably get resources to hire people that could fit into the gaps that you have to get the current and the new money going, so to speak. It almost feels like uh, current money is like very tactical in nature, hands-on, dealing with A's, and then this future money is strategic. Like you become almost like a strategic arm of the company. Like you're really informing execs on some like pretty high-level decisions that they they might be making, right? Absolutely, and and even with this strategic, you get to work with maybe the M&A team, right? So you, or the product management team where you look at, okay, here's a new market. What gaps of the portfolio do we have to get into that new market? And do we need to make an acquisition to kind of springboard us into that? So it, it opens a lot of possibilities uh, as you kind of venture into this new, new money territory in the role that you have in competitive. And it's, it ties back to when we first said, okay, 
why is it matter getting exec support? And one of the first things you said as well is like, you can't just come in and expect them to just listen to everything you say. Like you need to start with problem solution. And is it easier to present the problem and solution for some of this current money stuff? And then because of that, because you're presenting the solution to the current money and you're proving your impact on revenue that you're offered the leeway, not the leeway, but the credibility to actually now be part of these kind of strategic initiatives. Yeah, you know, that's a tough question because a lot of people think that it's linear, right? Maybe I need to start with current money and then I can get to future money. It's not linear. It depends on the company you're at. As an example, let's say you're at a company and maybe they're doing awesome. Maybe the win rate is 80%. Why do they need to worry about current money? They're, They're winning deals left and right. However, there, as you know, just like, you know, Dr. Clayton Christensen's book on innovation dilemma, you focus on one market too long that some other person, some other company may come in, disrupt your market and you go to oblivion. You, you, you start to, you know, hemorrhage. And so perhaps your company is doing well with the current money with 80, 90% win rate. Uh, by the way, I don't know any companies that have a 90% <laughs> win rate, but my point is maybe they, they're just doing so well acquiring new logos that they're not even thinking about future money because they're so you know, infatuated with this current money because they're just getting shares right and left. And rightfully so, that's exciting. You want to be at that company, but then you want to be that person that thinks out of the box and thinks, what's our next phase? What's our next act of the play that we need to get to? Because I promise you, if this was Amazon 20 years ago, they never thought that, you know, people thought Amazon sold books 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, 2000. Well, we could argue that, okay, 25 years ago, Amazon was around 95, 96 selling books. No one thought that they'd get into the data center cloud business. And somebody at Amazon, now granted, I know the story, I know some of the callers go, well, what Amazon did was they started in-house. They started to create their own you know, cloud infrastructure within Amazon to proliferate their you know, front line. And then they thought, hey, I have all these open workloads. Maybe we should start selling it, at lease it out to other companies. You know? And Amazon was able to kind of create that. But once they were starting to get that going, somebody there had to look at the market and look at the opportunities there. And because and, and people tell me, oh, Scott, you know, you, you know, Amazon, they don't care about market intelligence. They don't care about that. That's baloney. If that's the truth, why does Amazon app all these spend millions of dollars on syndicated research from Gartner, IDC and others? <laughs> so to tell me that they, you know, they don't care about intelligence is, is a fallacy. They, they spend millions of dollars. Now, granted, they may not listen to the analyst community, but they certainly want the data so that they can put together in their own private market intelligence group uh, at, at each of these respective companies. Totally. And I think even if you're a market leader, it does not mean that you shouldn't care about the landscape or emerging competitors. And I think even the Amazon story from 25 years ago is proof in the pudding of that. 
someone could usurp them in some way. So you've got a broad experience you've had in, in competitive and, and, and going back to executive buy-in and executive relationship. What's one piece of advice you would have given to yourself when you were starting this career in terms of this is what you need to do in order to get execs to, to build that relationship, I guess, with execs. That, that, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, let me tell you this. I mentor probably three, three people who are probably a lot younger than me. And the three advice I give to these people is one, figure out what your passion and what your skills are. So for me, my passion, my skill was research and piecing together a bread or breadcrumb together a narrative based on the research and the data that I've come up with. That's my passion. I mean, to the point that I would do it for free, even though I won't tell that to companies, but that's my passion. I love to research. I love to flip every rock out there. And believe it or not, with today's internet, it's a lot easier than it was 25 years ago, <laughs> you know? And, and the tools that are out there now, like, uh, you know, looking at the syndicate primary and secondary resource, the internet is really helpful on this now. So figure out what you're passionate about and what your skill sets are. The second thing is to your question about, uh, you know, about executive support and alignment is be able to have your hard skills translate into value to the executives. Like I mentioned earlier, the executives want to hear solutions, not problems. And so use your talents and your passion to provide value to the executives and there's a level of humility as well. Like you don't want to sound like a know-it-all, okay? And, and this is really clear because I actually learned this when I was at Gartner. I spoke with Satya Nadala at Microsoft and, and one of the, uh, it was honored speaking with him. And he taught me something that was really interesting. He said, Scott, when Bill Gates ran Microsoft, he hired know-it-all people. So everybody was at this level, they knew everything and we were like down here and there was a gap, like they knew it all. And it was really hard to work with those people because they were like, like they knew everything and you heard the vernacular, people like to hear themselves talk, you know? And that was the culture of Microsoft during the Bill Gates era. When I came in, I wanted to instill a learn it all culture. So, because if you find somebody that wants to learn perpetually, because the market's always changing like a flywheel, what happens is that if I continue to learn, I'm eventually going to catch up to the know-it-all person. But if I continue to learn, I'm eventually going to surpass the know-it-all person because the know-it-all person is never going to learn because they think they know it all. But if I continue to learn, I'm not only going to equal that person, but I'm going to surpass that person. And so when Satya said that, I was like, whoa, that, that is like such an epiphany to me. That is so correct is you want somebody that wants to learn who could adapt to change. And so to do that, you need to take your skills and to you know, show value to the executives, but also have that humility where you can learn from them and, and not just from them, from other people. So you're always learning. So then it, you're opening new, new chasms in your mind of like, wow, I didn't even think about that. And then the final one, the third one, 
I, I would give advice to people or to the mentors I gave is, you know, don't focus on titles. Don't focus on the pay or whatever. I mean, if you focus on that, you get bent around the axle. Because I'll be frank with you, 20 years ago, when I realized I love research, I didn't even think that the role of competitive market intelligence ever existed. I didn't even know it existed. And, and it, I fell into it when I was at Cisco. And now today, 2021, you go to LinkedIn, you see roles of competitive market intelligence roles, boom, like listed out there. 20 years ago, I didn't even think that that was even a job uh, wreck, you know? And now here it is. It's a full-fledged job opening and a position and a career in this thing. So don't follow, I guess the, the, the advice I'm giving you is don't follow titles or pay, just follow where your passion is and where you can provide value. And eventually the market is going to open up and say, I need someone with your unique skill sets. That is an awesome answer, Scott. I will, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take that one with me, I think as well, my own role. So that's, that's really interesting. I love that idea of always learning, especially if you have people at the top, they're always willing to learn. It's something I've always found in, in terms of leadership in any facet, be it sports, teachers, even parents, like people that come at you as a know-it-all and this this voice of authority that you just have to listen to and not ask questions. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And I think mm -hmm. that people, the best leaders I've had are always the ones that ask the most questions and are willing to listen more than they are to talk. Scott, it was awesome having you on here. There's a ton of lessons to be taken from here and I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to speak with you, Adam. Take care. See everyone next week.